We're continuing our series in, in Second Peter this morning, for those of you who've joined us for the first time. Um, and we're looking at the warnings that were given to the early church about the false prophets. But also we've been looking at the fact that the Christians were told to continue to grow in their faith and their knowledge of Christ. And today we continue very much with the same theme as we look at the reality. That's one thing I want us to focus on this morning. The reality of the second coming of Christ. And in the same way as we've seen in the other chapters, there is a warning for us to be on the lookout for those who subvert God's message, but also is a wonderful message of hope that comes to all who trust in God's unfailing promises. Now, false hope can lead to disillusionment. I read an article recently that looked at the fact that in the, as the millennium approached, a number of so-called Christian doomsday cults predicted that the end of the world was coming in 1st of January 2000. And all over the world in 1999, there was all sorts of activity happening in different parts. In Israel, a group of radical fundamentalist Christians were deported after they allegedly arrived to destroy the mosque at the Dome of the Rock, to re-establish the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, and so they thought to hasten the coming of the Lord. There's a story in Colombia of the 60 members of a cult who disappeared. They were last seen heading up a hill, believing that an alien spacecraft was about to take them to heaven. And as amused, and this is quoted straight from the BBC website, as amused to read a police spokesman saying, we have ruled nothing out, including murder, mass suicide, and even the possibility of abduction by aliens. But the story that struck me most from this passage that I was reading, for this article I was reading, was of a group of people in the Philippines. There was 50 of them, and they had spent a number of months digging caves and warrens underground in order to prepare for what they thought was the all-consuming fire that would come from heaven on the 1st of January. 2000. On the 2nd of January, they sheepishly emerged from their holes, returned to their villages, and the article said they returned bitterly disappointed that nothing had actually happened. You see, false hope, disillusionment, is nothing new, and it does lead to bitter disappointment. But if we're grounded in God's word, if we're willing to believe the promises that are in God's word, then we can avoid this disappointment and disillusionment. I want to start us by looking at what this passage is saying to us today. And there is a promise in there for us to follow. A promise to the early Christians that Jesus will return. Now there are many who doubted this at the time. If you turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 3, again you'll find that on page 1,223. We see in verse 3, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. There were deniers. Deniers who said that Jesus would not return. Now, despite the fact that this is written in the future tense, it says here that in the, in the future the scoffers will come, Peter was actually re, uh, writing to the church at the time. He talks in this verse of the last days. And the last days were the time for when Jesus came until the second time 
when Jesus would return again. So Peter was addressing the early Christians in the church then, but he's also speaking to us now as we still remain in the last days. Scoffers would come, Peter said. Well, who are these scoffers? It's like these scoffers were the false teachers we learned about last week. Because it talks about the scoffers wanting to follow their own evil desires. Wanting to purport a lie in order to justify what they were doing. We learned last week as Richard was speaking to us that these false teachers were people devoted to the world. In chapter 2 verse 14 we read they exploited the doctrine of spiritual freedom to justify their sexual indulgences. We learn in chapter 2 verse 16 that they loved money and in chapter 2 verse 18 that they loved human praise. The scoffers then that we see in these last days, the scoffers that we see in the church at the time, were attacking the truth in order to justify their evil ways. Well, these false teachers didn't waste any time. They went straight to the point at which the Christians were doubting in to spread their malicious lies. In verse 4, we see that they bring a two-part accusation. There is a question, and the question is clear that scoffers bring. Where is this coming, they say, that he promised? Where is this coming of Jesus that he promised? Well, it's likely that the early Christians thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. They thought that the words that had been spoken by the apostles were referring to the here and now. Jesus would return, they thought, before they died. But now it was 30 years on, members of their congregation were dying, members of their family were dying, and for some of them, they began to think, perhaps Jesus had lied. This was nothing new. We read in the New Testament that the believers in Thessalonica and in Corinth also experienced similar anxiety. And in fact, if you trace it all the way through the Old Testament, there have always been scoffers. Where is the God of justice? asked the evil men of Malachi's time. Where is your God? asked the pagans of David's day. Where is the word of the Lord? asked the enemies of Jeremiah. Where is this coming that he promised? I want you to look a bit closer at verse, four, at verse 3, in the second part of verse 3. And we read in there, sorry, verse 4 that is. We read in there, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. The scoffers go further. They don't just question whether Christ is returning. They actually put God in the docks and says that God has no place of intervention whatsoever in our lives. Ever since our fathers, they say, nothing has changed. Well, our fathers is a standard New Testament phrase to refer to the, old, the people of the Old Testament, the forefathers, the ancestors. And by the, the scoffers denying that anything has changed since the Old Testament, they're in fact not just denying that Jesus won't return, they're actually denying that nothing has changed since Jesus went to the cross. Nothing changes. God will not intervene, they say. 
And that's a depressing thought. Ever since the beginning, they say, we're caught in some sort of cyclic vacuum. The sun rises and the sun sets. The seasons come and go, the tide moves in and out, we are born and we die, but nothing changes. Well, there are many modern parallels with this. Certainly modern philosophers, some of them, and many modern scientists as well, would agree with these early scoffers. There is no God, says Richard Dawkins. Science can explain everything. And in the same way as the false teachers did, many modern philosophers have used this idea of God not intervening in our lives to justify their sins. Aldous Huxley said, The philosophy of meaningless for myself was essentially an instrument of liberation, both sexual and political. It's quite an accusation. Perhaps we felt it ourselves. Perhaps we mocked by our friends. Where is this second coming that you believe in? Well, thankfully we can rejoice that there is an answer and Peter gives us the answer in the next few verses. In fact, it's interesting to note that Peter does agree with these scoffers on one small point. There is something, he says, that doesn't change. And this thing is spoken about in verse 2, right at the beginning of the passage. There's something that doesn't change. It's something that the Christians are supposed to look at in order to stimulate themselves to wholesome thinking. It's something that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. It's something that the apostles spoke about in the New Testament. And it's something, actually, that our Lord Jesus spoke himself. And that thing which doesn't change, that thing that makes the scoffer's question redundant, is God's word. Where is the second coming? Well, Peter almost mocks and scoffs back at them. You only have to look at God's word to understand that this question is redundant. Let's look at verses 5 to 7 together. Three times Peter points out how God's word actually answers the scoffing of the false teachers. First of all, in verse 5, he points out that the false teachers forget that it was by God's word that the earth was created. In the beginning we learn God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was. And in Genesis 1, verse 9, we read God saying, let the water be gathered in one place, and let dry ground appear. God's word is true. We can trust that God's word is true because he created the world through the word. And the same way now that he's saying that Jesus will return, we can trust the word. Second in verse 6, he points out that it was by God's word that the earth in Noah's day was judged. And before you pick me up on that and say, well, it actually doesn't say the word, a number of, con- of, of um, commentators, including Dick Lucas, and, who, who are, are based a lot of stuff today, have contended that the plural used in verse 6, where it talks about these waters, is actually not talking about the plural of waters, the plurality of waters. It's talking about, by these, the words and the waters, did God come and judge the word. By God's word and through the waters was the earth judged. And perhaps most sobering for the early uh, 
false teachers, for those who were scoffing, was the fact that Peter points out that God intervened in the past, in the days of Noah. And by that very same word, God will intervene again. Verse 7, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of godly men, ungodly men. See, the same constant word that had the authority to create the world is the same constant word that had the authority to judge the world by the waters in the past and it is the same word that one day will come and judge all those who are left on the earth. We can be sure then, Peter says, we can be sure the answer to the question that Jesus will return is because Jesus, because God does intervene in his life. God created the heavens by his word, he judged the earth by the water and his word, and by his word will he return to judge the earth. Remember, God has promised that he will return. The second thing I want to look at is what Peter then goes on to talk about with the, uh, with the, with the, 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 the uh, false teachers at the time. Remember, he says, that when God does return, he will come to judge the earth, but also to bring about a new creation. Peter paints a very simple picture of what's going to happen in the future times when Christ does return. It's spelled out in verse 10, and it's repeated again in verse 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Well, the day of the Lord is a New Testament phrase referred to in, in, in Zechariah, Malachi, a number of other chapters. The people of the time would have known what this meant, the day of the Lord. It was a day when Christ was to return, when the promised Messiah would come back. However, this day wasn't going to come at a predicted time. Rather, we're told that the day of the Lord will appear suddenly, like a thief in the night. Peter here is actually directly quoting from Jesus. We know that Jesus said these words in Matthew 24 and verse uh, 42. Jesus said, Therefore keep watch, because you don't know on what day the Lord will return. You must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at a time when you don't expect him. Jesus will return, but he will return suddenly. He will return at a time when we're least expecting him. And what will these final days be like? Well, we're told in verse 10 and 12, that there will be days of great upheaval. We read in verse 10 that on this day the elements will be destroyed. We're not talking here about the elements of wind, fire and, and water. We're talking here about the elements to include the stars, the planets, the galaxies. In fact, any component part of the universe will be purged on the final day. Perhaps what's most striking, perhaps what's most stark is the fact that we read again in verse 10 is that everything 
will be laid bare. There'll be nowhere to hide. There'll be nowhere for anybody to hide their sins as the false teachers thought they could. All of creation will be laid bare. God will judge everyone and everything. And those who followed the false teachers, those who have denied the existence of God, those who have denied that God could intervene in our lives, those who have denied that Christ will come again, will be destroyed. It is a powerful picture. In some ways it's an oversimplified picture. And when we're looking at the end of times, we must look at different passages in the Bible to see the different, the different images that were given. But this terrifying picture that Peter gives of the earth being judged by fire, of the melting of the earth, was supposed to be terrifying. He keeps it simple here for the Christians of the time because he was so concerned that they were going to fall into the ways of the heresies of the false teachers. Don't devote yourselves, he was warning them, he's warning us, don't devote yourselves to accumulating things on this earth, don't devote yourselves to following the false teachers. Because it will all burn. It will all be reduced to ashes. Now this might be a message that we're reluctant to share in our modern age. But it is a necessary message. But it would be a wrong message if we left it purely at the judgment. Because Peter wants this to be a hopeful message that he's bringing. Yes, Jesus will return. Yes, there will be destruction on that day. But also, there will be the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. If you look at verse 13, we read, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Peter's description is not just talking about annihilation here. In the same ways that the waters of verse 6 that we read about purged the earth, but did not destroy it, in the same way, when the fire comes, it will purify the earth. Peter's reminding the Christians here of the promise from Isaiah, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall, be, shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Those of you who have allotments, or those of you who perhaps are into gardening on a larger scale, will know what I'm talking about here when I mention that every year on the Serengeti Plains in East Africa, the park wardens go out and they deliberately set light to the fields, to the grasslands, in order to destroy the growth of the previous year. And to the non-ecologically minded tourists, and there is a lot of them who go out there spending their money to go and see the, the wild animals, they might think this is some sort of wanton vandalism. And many have been known to go to the headquarters and say they saw some people destroying the grasslands. What they don't know, however, is that when the seasonal rains come, the destruction of the old tired grass, the ashes that are put back into the soil, cause new life to spring up and the grass to grow even more luxuriantly than ever before. In the same way God has promised us that there will be a second coming. Christ will come to judge the earth and evil and all its consequences and servants will be destroyed. But for those who trust in God's unfailing promise, there will be a new creation 
and a life of anticipation to look forward to. And we can trust that this is true because it's in God's word. Oh, Peter's told us that Jesus will return. Peter's told us that on that day when he returns there will be a judgment but there will also be the creation of a new heaven and an earth. But that perhaps doesn't answer the question about why Christ has not yet returned now. Perhaps some of you might be having those questions. Certain people at those times had the questions, where is the second coming? And Peter wants us to remember that in fact Christ's delay is necessary to give everybody the opportunity to respond to God's message. As Dick Lucas puts it, the delay is not a delay in judgment, but rather it's an extension of the time during which men and women may be rescued. We see this as we study verse 8 and verse 9. Do not forget this one thing we read, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's difficult for us to understand, perhaps, why Christ has not returned. God does work on an entirely different dimension to us. To him a day is like a thousand years, it says. It reminds me of the story of the accountant who was having a conversation with God and questioned him, Lord, would it be true that if a day is like a thousand years, then to you a pound would be the same as a thousand pounds? To which the Lord, working in different dimensions, said, yes, that would probably be the case. To which the opportunistic accountant said, God, may I have one of those pounds, please, then? And God said, yes, I'll give it to you tomorrow. You see, God works on an entirely different dimension to us. That's clearly a frivolous story, but it does demonstrate that God's ways are beyond our understanding. In Psalm 90 we read, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. God sees time with a perspective which we lack. God can see all of history in one moment, but because he is eternal, the everlasting, the everlasting, he can stretch out a thousand years to a day. The key point here comes in verse 9, where we learn that God is not slow in keeping his promises. God does intend to still keep his promise, but the reason he has not yet returned is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. The delay of Christ's return is not a failure of God's plan. It's a condition of God's success. God wants heaven to be populated. A few months back I was waiting in the back room of a small church in Perth, knowing that the bride was going to be arriving in about ten minutes' time, but that her in-laws, my parents, were still about half an hour away taking their usual time to get there. 
I was a bit worried about this. I didn't want them to miss out on the opening of the, of the uh, ceremony. So an usher was dispatched to the front door to ensure that they could delay the bride and send, them, send her around the block a couple of times. Thankfully, as often is the case, uh, the bride herself was about 25 minutes late. And so the family managed to slip in before the bride arrived. In exactly the same way, Jesus is waiting. He's waiting to ensure that all the guests have the opportunity to come to the final celebration when Christ returns to claim his bride. Not all of them will respond. But it's up to us as Christians, and this is not said directly in the passage, but certainly implied by the passage, it's up to us as Christians to use that time wisely. To think about, not looking inward, trying to find out when Christ might return and worry about that, but to use the time we have been given to fulfill the Great Commission, to share the word with our friends, to tell them wonderful news, that God's patience, that God is waiting for people to be saved. God's patience means that there's time for others to be saved. And we have a part to play in this. Well, finally this morning, I want us to look at area of application, which Peter spends the rest of the chapter looking at. We're not going to go through the whole pack, uh, chapter. We could do a series of sermons, in fact, in this chapter, and we're going to stop at verse 14 today. But we're asked how we ought to live our lives in light of what we've learned. In light of the fact we know that Christ is returning, in light of the fact that we know that this delay is in order that others might be saved, how ought we to live our lives? Well, in verse 11 and 12, if we look at that now, we're told, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its returning. Peter doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts here and nor am I going to do the same thing. But rather we are asked to ensure that we set our lives aside, we set them apart as God-fearing people who joyfully anticipate the day of Christ's return. In fact, three times here we're told to look forward in this passage. We're told to look forward to the day of Christ's returning. What does it mean to be holy? Well, holiness, first of all, is a matter of living for God. But secondly, it's a matter of living different lives from the world. And we're also required to be godly, to put God at the centre of our thoughts, and our thinking. Not our careers, not our families, not our finances, but God is to be put at the centre. The implications of verse 11 are that only the things that will, the only things that will survive the judgment are expressions of holiness and godliness. Everything is going to be destroyed in the last day, except for the fruits of holiness. There's an interesting small point in uh, chapter, uh, verse 12, which I'm not going to dwell on for too long, where we're asked to speed the coming of the Lord. Again, we could spend a whole sermon series on this, and 
in real terms, I guess we, we can't speak. The time has been fixed. Read about an act at the time of God's return. God knows when he's going to come back. That time has been fixed. But from our perspective, if us living sinful lives is what is delaying God's return, then we encourage God's return by living lives of obedience. And finally, we're told to focus on the future. In verses 13 and 14, we're told again to look forward, to look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And since we're looking forward again to this, to this uh, new heaven, new earth, we should make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Looking forward is something that we all ought to be doing. And the kind of looking forward I'm talking about here is not looking forward to some sort of point you know is beyond the horizon that perhaps if you had a compass you could sail to but you don't actually know if it's there when you get to it. The looking forward we're talking to is to a fixed point that we can actually see on the horizon. An island we can see that we know we're heading to which we know we will reach if we set the correct course for it. We know our destination if we trust in God. We must make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. Well, this last phrase is hard to comprehend because none of us is perfect. None of us is blameless. And the phrase actually comes from the Old Testament again. The sacrificial lambs, the priests who took part in the sacrifice, they were called upon to be blameless. And these two words, spotless and blameless, are actually in direct contrast to two words that are used in Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 13 to describe the false teachers who are referred to as having blots and blemishes. We can't make ourselves perfect, but through the saving power of Christ who died on the cross for our, uh, for our sins and through his gift of grace, he does make us blameless. He took the punishment and we must live our lives in contrast to the false teachers of the day. Now we started this morning in looking at a number of people who characterized their lives by living for false hopes. These people were disillusioned because the Messiah they anticipated to come never materialized. We're asked to live our lives in contrast to this to trust and understand that God will return and that he will return to take all who love him to be with him. As a result of this, we're called upon to live holy and godly lives and to look forward to the future. Contrast those poor souls in the Philippines who believed that their leader was going, to, was going to save them from the destruction that was coming on the 1st of January 2000 with Peter Torgerson, a young Norwegian who at the age of 17 was so convicted that he had to live his life for God that he went forward in a meeting, he emptied his purse of everything he had in it and as well as the money, he wrote in a piece of paper and put it into the offering and I give my life as well. Torgensen went on to lead a very fruitful life. He worked as a missionary in China for many years sharing the future hope that we've learnt about this morning with many others and living his life in anticipation that one day Christ is going to return.
Each of us needs to live our lives in the same way. We need to live lives that are heaven-centered. We need to live lives as well that are ones of confidence that Christ will return to sweep away the world, but also to create a new heaven and a new earth. Let us also remember that God's patience means salvation. It means salvation for those who have not yet turned uh, to him. And it's up to us to take the time to spread the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ.